0: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Something to note. All myths have many versions and variations. For this episode, we've selected those we felt are the most dramatic and entertaining and supplemented them with additional research into ancient Scandinavian traditions. Because mythology comes from oral tradition, there's a wide variety across sources. Our myths may not always be the version you're familiar with, but we hope you'll enjoy them. The thief crept through the dark cavern, making his way by the faint, glittering light that danced across the rocky walls. It grew steadily brighter, pulsating and teasing with its tingling aura. The thief moved forward, out of duty, out of desperation, out of fear. When he rounded the corner, he saw the object giving off the celestial glow. He stood for a moment with his mouth agape. Before him were mounds and mounds of treasure, gold and jewels and glistening armor, gem-encrusted shields and swords that were still sharp from a time long past. He saw not just wealth, but the history of man's obsession with, and dedication to, beauty. There were stories in that pile, stories that the thief could never hope to understand. But even those mountains of treasure could not distract from the beast that lay upon them. For there, resting with a heavy exhaustion, was a great serpent, at least 50 feet in length, Wreaths of smoke drifted from its round nostrils as its body heaved with each massive breath. Its hide glimmered the same golden color as the decorated heap. It looked hardened and impenetrable on all sides. The thought of confronting such a vicious beast terrified the thief. But so did the prospect of returning empty-handed. He pushed forward to the edge of the pile and grabbed the first golden thing he could without disturbing the beast's rest. As he pulled this golden cup away, he kept his eyes fixated on the creature. It remained unmoving atop the hoard, exhaling the smoky air that filled that great room. When the thief stole away from that terrible dungeon, he did so with a quick and silent footstep and the relieved bounce of one who had just saved his own life. But deep within the hall, the great lizard of the cave opened a single eye. It knew that its hoard had just been sullied. Welcome to Mythology, a ParCast Original. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. You can find all episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythology for free on Spotify, just open the app and type mythology in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're finishing the story of Beowulf as he takes on the third and most storied monster of his legendary life. The epic of Beowulf is a strange one and open to many different interpretations. It is embedded with contradictions, historical chronicles, and fantastical creatures blending Christian and pagan ideals, and cruel kings pegged against righteous ones. This ambiguity, combined with the fact that the author remains unknown, has left many scholars with little choice but to guess at the meaning behind its passages and frightening creatures. One thing that does jump out is the deliberate separation of three parts with three very distinct monsters, Out of this, we can hypothesize that the three monsters of Beowulf represent three distinct stages of life. Grendel, the monster jealous of the joy of revelry celebrated in Hrothgar's hall, can be seen as the dark side of envy and rage at not being included, emotions that are frequently associated with youth and adolescence. The hero's fight against Grendel's mother shows the pain of parenting, of losing a child, of battling with forces outside of human control. The third part of Beowulf sees the hero face off a dragon, his most deadly and famous foe yet. Their battle represents concerns of legacy, asking what was the most important thing for a man of the ancient Nords to leave behind. Was it wealth? familial heirs, a trail of successful conquests? For Beowulf, all of these things hung in the balance in his fight against his greatest foe. After Beowulf defeated Grendel and his terrible mother, his reputation followed him across the ocean back to his homeland of Geatland. There he shared his new wealth with his uncle, King Hoyalach, and rightfully took his place back at the side of his kin. The years passed, wars were fought and won, legends were made and memories buried beneath a bloodied soil. To avenge the death of his brother, Hojalak invaded Sweden, and his two men Eivor and Wulf slew the great king Ongentheo, who was then succeeded by his son Othera. Then, Hoyalak himself fell in a raid on Frisia, leaving the throne of the Geats open and its succession in question. Hoyed, Hoyalak’s wife and queen of the Geats, was the first to stir the controversy. Beowulf, you must have sense in these times. The Swedes will surely seek vengeance for Ongentheo. You must know that Hardraid is not prepared to lead the Geats to war. Intelligent boy though he is, his life has been the soft one of luxury. He does not have your experience with the monsters of the world.
2: Then it is our duty to teach him of monsters.
0: There are such things that cannot be taught.
2: And there are such things that we cannot question. The hand of fate spins and weaves, my queen. We cannot argue with lineage.
0: Thus, Beowulf denied his ascendancy to the throne, and gave his full support to Hardraid, Høyalak's son and rightful heir. But the Queen's words were soon proven true, for when the Swedes invaded the Geats with revenge on their mind, they did cut down Hardraid, thus placing Beowulf on the throne. Beowulf was decisive and ruthless with his enemies, as he always had been. He defeated the Swedes and sided with their new king, forming an alliance that would last throughout his reign. Indeed, all the neighboring tribes cowered in the face of the new King of the Geats. The legend of his incredible deeds, the defeats of terrible monsters, kept the land free of invasion for many years. And so Beowulf ruled over that land for fifty winters. He was a kind and reasonable king, always first to give before he took. He became a diplomat, and the days of his monster slaying fell into memory. He became, for all purposes, the king that the people wanted and not the king that he wanted to be. Thus, the land of the Geats stayed in a blissful state of peace until one day when a terrible beast awoke deep beneath the earth. It had been three weeks since the slave had fled from his master's home. He'd been unable to stop since then, having been turned away from one home after another. His feet were raw and blistered, his mind numb from lack of sleep. His clothing hung in ragged strips from his body, which was so caked in dirt that every movement made his skin stretch and crack. All he wanted now was to return. The labor and beatings were nothing compared to the agony of being free. But he knew his lord would be furious. He would string him up from a tree and mercilessly watch as he suffocated. Unless there was some way to make amends, give him a tribute of some kind for the trouble his departure had caused. And then he found that fateful cave, the cavern that glittered and danced, and in its lowest depths lay a hoard of treasure never before seen. On top of that brilliant mound sat a great dragon, 50 feet in length, tendrils of smoke poured from its nostrils every time the thing exhaled. (coughs) The slave had to cover his mouth to stop from coughing and from crying out in utter fear. He was transfixed. Even in the face of all this wealth, the only thing he could think of was making peace with his Lord so that he might sleep under a roof atop the soft comfort of hay. He took a tentative step forward and then another until at last he reached his hand out and pulled a cup from the edge of the pile. Then he turned and ran from that cavernous hell and returned to his liege lord to present him the jewel-encrusted cup, hoping only to have his first taste of food in days. But in the cavern, the great worm stirred the beast knew in an instant that something was different about his cherished collection it was not as it was when he fell asleep he could smell the stench of corruption he could sense that his domain had been tarnished he looked over each of his prizes frantic now that something was gone there At the very edge of the pile, it was the absence of something. A cup of the finest gold and jewels, somebody had taken his dear and precious cup. The serpent released a terrible roar into the night air, fury trembling through the beast's armored scales. The dragon paced its cavern, searching for any sign of the thief, ready to enact the most terrible revenge. But the foul thing was long gone. It was no matter. When night came, which night was always in the habit of doing, he would take flight from the depths and unleash an endless terror on the land. Coming up, The dragon ravages the land of the Geats. Now back to the story. The period between Beowulf's battles with Grendel and Grendel's mother and his rise to the throne of the Geats is a peculiar one in the old English epic. It packs years of history into several brief lines, covering wars and various lineages in brief succession. Indeed, the totality of Beowulf's reign is summed up as such. Then came the broad kingdom into Beowulf's hands. He held it well for fifty winters. He was then a wise king, old guardian of his homeland. That's all that is said of his most powerful position. This seems especially strange if, as J.R.R. Tolkien suggests, Beowulf is not an epic poem, but a eulogy to a once great ruler. What's more, the brief summary of Beowulf's rise to power allows us to date the events of the poem. Heuilach's Raid on the Frisians is recounted in other historical texts as happening around the year 516 C.E. How odd is it, then, that this poem combines historical accuracies with fantastic monsters and other fictional elements? It seems that if Beowulf is a eulogy, as Tolkien suggests, then it's one bathed in allegory, one where the monsters of life are manifest in terrible beasts—beasts that devour men and lay waste to entire civilizations. Beowulf sat in his hall. It felt like he had been sitting in his hall for years now. Delegating, appeasing, negotiating. He was tired. Tired of speaking. He longed for the days when he met swords with the best of men. For the revelry he received after his legendary wrestling match with Grendel. More wine, sir?
2: Not now, Hrethel. We must save our drink to celebrate our victories not muddy our
1: minds with liquor before our enemies even come. My lord, we haven't had
0: enemies in all my thirty winters. Surely this is a thing to celebrate. Sir, my lord, my king, the titles, the land, the fame, all of it now blended together, all of it swirled in each cup of drink.
2: Aye, Hrethel, the peace goes on. Give us some wine then.
0: But as Beowulf put the cup of wine to his lips, an unexpected visitor burst through the doors of the great hall.
1: My king, Lord Beowulf, Slayer of Grendel and Grendel's mother, Conqueror of the Swedes, there is a, a. a... Who allowed this pile of rags in our esteemed hall? Can the guards not see the king is occupied with important business? Easy now, Hreffel.
2: A king is a king to all his people, not just the warriors and landowners. It seems this peasant has come upon rather difficult times.
1: A dragon, sir! There is a dragon that is burning the villages, burning the people. He comes at night when eyes are shut and dreams are company. He does not discriminate in his destruction, and every night he inches closer to the castle, closer to your domain. During the day, he returns to his lair, where he lies atop a mound of untold wealth, greater than all of the tribes of Sweden combined. A grand fable for such a slave. Quiet!
2: You have been to this cavern? I have. You can lead us there? I can. Then we ride at dawn.
0: The dissent from his most trusted advisors was immediate. He could not hope to attack such a beast, even if it was terrorizing the country. It had yet to disturb the capital. Such risks were not wise. They could not afford to lose their most trusted leader. But Beowulf was stubborn and fixated on the thing that would bring excitement to his life again, and he knew and accepted that this was his chance to die an honorable death. He had escaped that maiden many times before. He defeated Grendel, the terror of the Danes, and that beast's wretched mother. He survived the battle that stole Hoyalach and that which took Hardrade after him. He fought with the Frisians and the Swedes and always sent back less men than they had dared send to challenge him. Never had he backed away when the lives of his people were at stake. Never had he trembled before the hand of fate. So he roused 11 of his best warriors and made the thief take them to the serpent's underground lair. The men marched with a resigned duty behind their king. They carried shields of iron so they would not burn, but it was the weight of their task that slouched their shoulders and dragged their feet. Only Wielof, son of Weostan, walked with a purpose, showing little by way of fear as they approached the beast's lair. For his part, the thief was weary, wretched with the memory of his deed, terrified to return to the smoky and hot cavern, where he alone knew and understood the beast that lurked there, waiting for the one responsible for disturbing his precious hoard, the one that took the invaluable cup. The warriors made their way forward into that cave and were struck by the flickering light of the treasure, Beowulf stopped then and turned to his men.
2: It is from here that I must go alone. But, my lord. Be calm, Welof. Was it not I that slayed Grendel, the great bane of the Danish hall? i that was you. Was it not I, alone, that then killed the beast's mother? I, my lord, in a battle talked about throughout all of Sweden. And have I not in my years as king held peace upon these lands.
1: It has been so calm that we have known no conflict.
2: Then it is only right that I should face this beast alone. The Maiden of Death whispers to me, Wheelof. She does not know if I shall open the door for her. Her invitation still hangs in the balance. But I am not a man to challenge the tapestry of fate, and fate has brought me to face the beast. I do not know which of us shall live but one will return from the cave. Fear not, for fate is the ruler of us all, and we must always do her bidding.
0: And with that, Beowulf ran forth. He entered the cavernous hall and was met with a plume of molten hot fire. He held his iron shield against it, certain that at any moment he would be eviscerated into ash. But then the barrage stopped. Steam drifted out of the molten rock. Beowulf felt the heat of his armor and inhaled the sulfuric fumes. He looked up and saw the beast for the first time. It was long and glowed with a fiery shine. It was at least fifty feet long, and its scales looked sharp and impenetrable. It bared its teeth at the invading human, and waited so that it might unleash another inferno. With great force, the old king rose to his feet. He charged the dragon, drew back his sword, and brought it down upon the creature's back. But the sword glanced against the hardened scales of the great serpent. The strike enraged the beast. The dragon came then at Beowulf with gnashing teeth and vicious claws. For the first time in all his battles, Beowulf was forced to retreat. He took refuge behind a great boulder, reminding himself of his great deeds as the dragon unleashed another torrent of fire. Beowulf breathed in the rancid air, waiting for a moment of reprieve from the constant inferno. Slowly, the truth dawned on him. This was not a task he could finish on his own, but his retainers were nowhere to be found. The great hero was truly alone. But the warriors that had accompanied him watched from a distance, aghast that Beowulf, the greatest of them all, looked helpless against the fiery beast. Their king, their conqueror, their strongest warrior lay huddled behind a rock as though playing a child's game.
1: The king will surely die. We must save ourselves and bring more men. We are too few to slay such a beast. And abandon our king, the protector of all our lands? We share drink with him. He gave us our land, our titles. Even now he fights for the safety of us and our families. If he fights for our safety, then surely he would agree that we should flee. He chose you, each and every one of you, to take on this great task with him and so imprint our very names into the legends and yet you wish to turn your backs on this destiny? What choice do we have? We can choose honor. You may have your honor, Wilof.
0: We choose to live. Ten of the warriors then fled to the woods so they might save their own lives. But one, Weelof, son of Weostan, took pity on the king's struggle and remained behind. He bore his shield and stepped into the cavern. When we return, Wheelough joins Beowulf in his fight against the dragon. Now back to the story. The anonymous poet of Beowulf uses an interesting device throughout the poem. He pins Beowulf against his opposites as a way to tacitly say what a hero should not be. He cites the cruel king, Haramod, who killed his own soldiers uses unfairth as a way to display rudeness and inhospitality, and regularly references the horrors of slaying one's own kin. But perhaps the moment that stands out most is the fleeing of the retainers. When Beowulf's guard runs to the woods, the author is outlining exactly what a hero should not do, They're placing their own lives ahead of the safety of their people and discarding all sense of honor that they may have had. Which makes it especially significant that Wheelof stays behind, especially when we consider the role the third act plays in defining legacy. Welof is the man who will carry on Beowulf's heroism, and he's the man that reminds Beowulf of his status as a hero at a time when it matters the most. When Weelof charged into the cavern, he did so with his shield in front of him. As he neared the rock where Beowulf was pinned, he called out to his king in a clear and decisive voice.
1: Dear Beowulf, now is the time to remember your youth. I have not known you to take a knee before any confrontation. Now is the time to call upon your great strength. Use it, and I will stand behind you.
0: With the new challenger approaching, the dragon roared in anger and turned the blast of his inferno upon this other warrior. Wheelof was helpless against the blaze. Beowulf looked upon him. The brave boy. Hardly had he matched swords on the fields of battle, and now he stood in the face of death for his king ready to sacrifice everything except his own honor. Beowulf would not let cowardice overtake him as this boy perished. If he died today, he died. Fate would forever be the hand that moved him. So the old king stood, let out a bellowing roar and charged forth taking back his sword and striking the dragon in its skull with all his strength. The sword shattered against the dragon's head. Before the king could move, the serpent turned toward him and with unmatched outrage sunk its great fangs into Beowulf's shoulder. Blood poured from the wound as the carnivorous worm swung Beowulf's body with fury. But the suffering of the legend gave Welof the opening he needed. The young warrior took his sword and with all his strength brought it into the beast's neck. The dragon let out a horrible cry and dropped Beowulf to the ground. With his hand singed from the flames, he unsheathed his dagger and rammed it into the creature's belly, slicing it from one end to the other. Then the dragon collapsed, and Beowulf slunk against a wall of the great cavern. He looked down at the terrible wound on his arm and felt a type of poison burning and swelling the bite.
2: So it is then. So comes the end of my adventures.
0: Seeing his distress, Weelof hurried to get his lord water. He poured it into the wound.
2: It's no use, boy. The maiden can come in now. Tell me something. I've done well,
1: haven't I? More than well, my lord. You protected the gates from years of treachery. You kept us safe from the dangers of monsters and the dangers of war. And we won great wealth this day. More riches than any man has laid eyes on before. Show me.
0: So Weelof carried out the dying wish of his king and went to collect as much treasure as he could hold from the hoard so that the king might look on it and be proud. When Weelof returned, Beowulf breathed a sigh of relief.
2: Forever will I be grateful to the God Almighty that I am able to leave behind such riches to my people.
0: Then Beowulf warned Welof that hard times lay ahead. The Swedes would be emboldened by his death and would return to seek revenge on his people. As his life dwindled away, he made Welof his official heir, the new king of the Geats.
2: Fate has swept away all my kinsmen, earls and their courage to their final destiny. I must follow them.
0: And with those final words, the legendary king died and his soul drifted into the unknown plain. Welof tried desperately to keep his lord alive. He splashed him over and over with water And when he realized his labors were futile, he wept. (laughs) After a time, he gathered himself and left the cave, where he found the warriors that had fled the fight. Wheeloff looked at them and spoke.
1: It was your fault. The people he chose to guard him best. You fled when he needed you most. You cowered at the first sign of victory. Your families, those of your name, shall never see the wealth we won here today. To bear your name will be a mark of shame known through all the lands, and you shall each die a dishonorable death, for there is no more life with the dishonor each of you carry with you now.
0: When the Geats learned of the death of their ruler, an incredible grief swept across the land. They wailed and hugged and lamented the loss of their greatest hero. When they distributed the wealth from the dragon's hoard, the feeling was bittersweet. They were afraid, afraid of a world without their protector. No amount of riches could stop that trembling fear they built a funeral pyre large enough that none had seen its like before. They placed on that pyre Beowulf's armor and countless other jewels, riches, and battle garments so that the king might pass with the wealth that he had earned. They lit the fire and they wept.
1: Now our great hero passes, his legacy unmatched. When he wrestled with Grendel, he was but a soldier. When he cut down that foul beast's mother, he became a hero. But he did not boast or brag. He humbly served his kingdom for 50 winters and kept warriors at bay. And when the greatest threat descended upon us, he did not hesitate as he charged into that terrible worm's home. Now, with our protector gone, The wolves will come. They will try to pick at our prosperity like vultures. But we must not cower in fear. We must take up the sword of our dear Beowulf and charge forth into the jaws of fate.
0: Then an old woman sang songs of the great hero's deeds. The mourners shared stories of his prowess, talked of his glory, of his mild disposition, and dauntless courage. He was Beowulf. He was their king, and they would never let his memory die. The story of Beowulf is deeply concerned with the idea of fate, As Edward Irving points out in his essay, The Text of Fate, cycles of joy and sadness are embedded within the poem. Humanity and its threads are not preserved through the individual, but through legacy, lineage, and the sharing of stories. All of these threads matter, and are pieces of the entire story. Even what seems like a tangential, historical thread is part of outlining how the Hand of Fate works and how these cycles define the generations. Beowulf is immensely complex in this sense. Every weapon, helmet, shield, hall, and so forth has a story of legacy attached that's woven into the lives of the main characters. This highlights the idea that the threads of these lives are intricately tied together and all these parts must be kept in place. This is why Beowulf, as the hero of the story, acts more as an agent of fate than one who shapes and carves out the story. He's the hand that adjusts the abnormal, the warrior that cleans up the mess left by monsters, those creatures of chaos that wish to unseat the order of things. He acts as a preserver of legacy. That makes his death inevitable, and it makes sense that the only way for him to die is in the act of this preservation. The agents of fate are not themselves outside its terrible hand. But it's the very intricacies of the relationship between fate and chaos that have made the simple story of a man slaying monsters into an immensely complex one. One that's been dissected and argued over for hundreds of years. Beowulf's influence on Western storytelling is undeniable. Most notably, the poem was the direct inspiration for J.R.R. R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, where a hobbit steals from a dragon's hoard, causing that dragon to burn down all the surrounding cities. But more than that, Beowulf has inspired countless works of art and endless interpretive discussion. The poem is a glimpse into the lives of the Nordic peoples and into our own history, a history where stories were passed down generation after generation through oral tradition as a means of preserving the very fabric of humanity. It is this tradition that Beowulf represents, of using stories to recount our past and honor the times that would otherwise be long forgotten. Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Mythology, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythology on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythology in the search bar. If you enjoy mythology, you'll love my other podcast, Tales. Tales presents fairy tales the way they were originally told, orally and unadulterated. Traditional fairy tales aren't exactly suitable for children. And every other Saturday, we dive into another dark, classic tale. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another epic tale. Mythology was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Mythology was written by Drew Cole, with writing assistance by Greg Castro, The amazing cast of voice actors includes Mike Capozzi, Sky King, and Samantha Moore. I'm Vanessa Richardson.